a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show. Yes, once again, we are off and running swiftly through the, the land of wrong think. I know it sounds really subversive, maybe even borderline criminal, but it's really about uh, owning your own worldview, questioning the narrative, cutting through the manipulation, cutting through all of the smoke screens and things that are um, supposed to, to keep us at least misdirected from seeing some things that we're not supposed to see and uh, and maybe to, to just keep us, you know, on that, what uh, Thomas Woods refers to as the 3 by 5 index card of approved opinion. Yeah, we have no use for that. And it's not because we're trying to be edgy and we're trying to be salty and, you know, uh, you can't tell me what to think. Well, actually, I guess that last part is true. You really can't. <laughs> I will take ownership of my thoughts and I don't need any of your help to direct me for my own good, you know, so that uh, I don't uh, somehow go astray of whatever the official orthodoxy of the day may be. Because for some reason, some some odd coincidence, that orthodoxy always seems to favor those in power, those who wish to control me, those who wish to fleece me, and otherwise, you know, direct my every move. I wasn't born to wear a saddle, and neither were you. And I suppose that's probably one of the reasons why you're checking out this show. So if you're wrong, think, curious, welcome. You have found a good place. Come find courage. Come find camaraderie. And come recognize that you are not nearly as alone as you have been made to feel in a world where conformity is rewarded and, uh, and uniformity is portrayed as the highest possible ideal when it comes to human thought. Got some interesting topics and a very wide variety of things to cover today. And I want to start with something that it's it's a little bit concerning, but I think it's also sort of understandable. How many people have you spoken with in the last, I'm just going to say in the last few months, when things have started to mellow out, you know, when things have started to to finally settle down, the lockdowns are beginning to end, the mandates of masks and so forth, some of the uh, the different uh, stresses that we've been dealing with for the last little bit. You know, we started, I think we're all feeling a little bit more optimistic than we were, say, this time last year, right? There was a lot more unknowns at that time. But something that has struck me is in the last few weeks, I have encountered more people who uh, very openly, and they shouldn't be ashamed, have admitted, uh, yeah, I'm fighting depression or I'm dealing with depression. And this includes people from, um, you know, advanced age right down to young people, you know, in their early teens or even even sometimes children. And I know that uh, this is this is like, OK, so you're going to be an armchair quarterback or, or armchair psychiatrist on this. No, not really. I, I'm not going to try and portray a mental health official. I'm not. I don't have that kind of training. But I do find it curious that uh, this is something that clearly a lot of people are struggling with, myself included. I'm not immune from it. But I'm very interested when I see articles like the one that Hannah Cox had published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website 
And it's an article about how Harvard researchers say there is just one little life adjustment that we can make that actually reduces our risk of depression. I thought you might find it interesting, maybe even useful. So what you do with this information, that's entirely up to you. But Hannah Cox's article is marvelous. And she says, in any given year, one in five Americans will have a diagnosable mental health condition. And of course, 2020 and 2021 were anything but any given years. Hannah Cox writes, research continues to pour in, showing an increase in mental health problems from the COVID-19 pandemic and government policies resulting from it. One medical study found that depression symptoms were three times higher than before the pandemic. A separate survey published by the Washington Post found one-third of Americans now show symptoms of anxiety, depression, or both. Now, left untreated, depression exacts a severe toll in our communities, economy, and daily lives. In some ways, it's as costly as heart disease or AIDS, costing over $51 billion in work absenteeism and lost productivity, and another $26 billion in direct treatment. Now, just as an aside here, I just want to give you a tangible example of, of what she's referring to here. I have heard from numerous managers and employers who have said, man, I've never seen it like this before. Hard to find people who, first of all, will, will apply for the job right now because the government checks, right? The stimulus, the, the care that Uncle Sugar is giving us, you know, in the wake of COVID makes it easier for people to sit home and collect government checks. But among those who do actually apply for a job, get a job, get hired and trained and everything, it's becoming much more common. And this is, you know, this is anecdotal, but it's it's based on um, having talked to a number of different employers across several different uh, work fields. It's not that uncommon for people to just say, I just can't do it today. I'm just, I'm just not there. I mentally, I'm just not people, people are, you know, right there on the verge of breaking down. And I don't, I don't say this to criticize them. You know, come on, stupid, get confident. You know, this is not a chance to, to pile on them and, and their woes. I think those woes are probably quite real, but it's a good illustration of how this does impact the economy. It does impact the lives of others. And here's the good news. As Hannah Cox says, fortunately, new research shows there's an easy step we can all take to prevent depression. <laughs> I'm curious how you're going to react when I tell you what that step is. Are you ready for this? Wake up an hour earlier. She says, that's right. Just one hour of sleep reduces a person's risk of major depression by a whopping 23%. Now, here's the explanation. The study conducted by researchers from Harvard, MIT, and University of Colorado, Boulder, studied 840,000 individuals, and its findings are some of the strongest evidence that a person's sleep schedule influences depression risk. Celine Vetter, assistant professor of integrative physiology at CU Boulder, says, we've known for some time that there's a relationship between sleep timing and mood. But a question we often hear from clinicians is, how much earlier do we need to shift people to see a benefit? We found that even one hour earlier sleep timing is associated with significantly lower risk of depression. 
Now, I have to admit, I was thinking, okay, what are they going to say? This one simple trick. With this one simple trick, you know, your teeth will be white and shiny and your breath minty and fresh every morning. But uh, the the thought of get up an hour earlier, I mean, I would have thought it would be something like, you know, do an act of kindness or think about what you're grateful for. And by the way, those are those are great things in and of themselves. I'm not discounting them. But rolling out of bed an hour earlier, really? That's a viable tool apparently, to to battle depression? All right, tell me more. Hannah Cox goes on to say the discovery is especially important as the increase in remote working schedules has led many to sleep in later, which could have important implications on their mental health. And she says it's also important because it's a cheap and readily accessible option for treatment. One thing she points out in this article is that Americans face many barriers to mental health care. First and foremost, it's expensive. An hour-long therapy session costs between $65 and $250 per session. That's without insurance. And thanks to bad government policies meddling in the insurance market, many therapists do not accept insurance at all. Furthermore, she says, a more severe mental health diagnosis can be even more costly. Patients with severe depression who receive medical care spend nearly $11,000 a year on average. That's according to a report by CNBC. I mean, you'd be surprised. If you know somebody who personally is on uh, mood-regulating uh, prescriptions, 300 bucks a month, that's a drop in the bucket of what people could pay. Hannah Cox says the expense, coupled with a shortage in providers and medical deserts throughout many uh, throughout large parts of the U.S., lead many to forego treatment altogether. In fact, she says, according to the National Council on Behavioral Health, 56% of patients want access to a mental health barrier or to a mental health provider, rather, but they face barriers. What might those barriers look like? Well, that's a fine question for us to pursue when we come back from the break, just the other side of these messages. So if you know someone, or maybe you yourself have been struggling with depression, maybe, you know, first of all, we got to lose the stigma. Struggling, even if it's with mental health issues, is not, you know, the, the scarlet letter you have to wear for the rest of your life. I have a link to the article in the show notes. You'll find them at the com show notes for June 11th. Stick around. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an excellent article from Hannah Cox from the Foundation for Economic Education. Harvard researchers say this one tiny life adjustment can reduce your depression risk. And the crazy thing is it starts with getting up an hour earlier. I don't know, you know, how long is that saying? Uh, You know, early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Look, I've always been kind of an early riser. Many, many years of working morning radio had uh, had kind of trained that into me. And I'm still an early bird. My eyes typically are going to fly open, <clears throat> you know, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning. Now, that doesn't mean that I bound out of bed bushy-eyed and, yes, you know, just eager to face the day. It's tough. 
But sometimes I do find that uh, I have much more of a sense of getting things done, a much more positive outlook when I arise early and I get after life. So I'm thinking there may be something to this. In her article, Hannah Cox talked about how, according to the National Council on Behavioral Health, 56% of patients seeking to access a mental health provider say that they face barriers. And she points out that those barriers were, of course, increased during COVID as facilities were shut down and non-COVID patients were denied care. The numbers have already begun trickling in, showing lockdowns did lead to greater drug use, youth suicides, and increases in depression and anxiety. Now, when one is struggling with depression, it's especially hard to overcome external barriers to care. Making a phone call can feel like climbing a mountain. And if you reject it, it can be all but impossible to summon the energy to keep looking and keep asking for help. But she says this new research shows individuals have the ability to take charge of their own circumstances by making small daily changes that can help them fight their disease. Alice Walker, the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning novel The Color Purple, famously said, people give up their power by thinking they don't have any. So people often forget they have power within themselves, says Hannah Cox, to confront their problems and in turn seek protection from other external earthly things, namely the government or their leaders. But this cycle produces dependency rather than empowerment, which is not the life we as individuals were intended for. In the law by Frederick Bastiat, he says, Life, faculties, production, in other words, individuality, liberty, property, this is man. And in spite of the cunning and artful politi- of artful political leaders, these three gifts from God precede all human legislation and are superior to it. Again, those three things, individuality, liberty, and property. Why, that sounds a lot like the very tenets of this very show. So I, I'm very happy to see myself lining up there with uh, Hannah Cox's mind as well as uh, Frederick Bastiat's. Cox says, when dealing with mental health issues, she says, as full disclosure, I do. An important guiding principle is self-responsibility. Yes, you may face additional burdens that others do not in your daily life, but it is still your responsibility to confront them, work through them, and move forward. And she says, ultimately, your mental health is your responsibility, and no one can do that for you. Now, the same principle can be applied more broadly to those without mental health issues, too, Yes, there may be circumstances that are unjust or unpleasant. Yes, we may have barriers placed on our paths that are outside of our control, especially by the government. But she says we can control how we face and hopefully overcome those circumstances. We can't turn back the clocks on all that's happened over the past year and a half. But if we, return, but if we turn the alarm clock one hour back, we might just be a step closer to regaining control of our health. Very curious to me that uh, that it's, you know, waking up an hour earlier. And I think it's something that, uh, th- this is the cool thing. You could actually put it to the test. You could very simply, you know, wake up an hour earlier. Do it on a regular basis. I mean, give yourself a couple of weeks. I think it is, what, 21 days to establish a new habit. If you did that for 21 days, 
I wonder what you would see at the end of that three-week period. If it would, uh, you know, be something noticeable or if you'd be like, eh, I still feel pretty much the same, just a little more tired, you know, come come noontime. I don't know. I know there's a tradition at uh, Monticello College. That's uh, one of one of the sponsors of this program. Monticello College, uh, when they hold uh, family retreats, which they do about once a year, has what is called a sunrise salute or sunrise solitude. Sorry, I think I may have incorporated a yoga term <laughs> into into their tradition there. But it's sunrise solitude. And because it's a mountain campus and because it's it's in a very beautiful corner of southeastern Utah down by the Four Corners area, people who are participating in those retreats are encouraged. Get up early enough to watch the sun come up. Now, we're talking during the summer months. And so the sun is coming up pretty early. I mean, it's you're seeing serious light outside or at least noticeable, you know, the dawn is arriving um, before 5 o'clock in the morning. 5 o'clock, you, you can see the light growing on the eastern horizon. And I've often thought, well, what an interesting thing, you know, to get up early, to, to be a part of that, to watch the sun come up. And I don't know, you know, is, is there a physiological thing that happens from that? I do know this. In that setting, you know, far away from your electronic devices, far away from the distractions, far away from the sound of traffic, that's a very good time for a person to mentally be operating at peak efficiency. And I'm not a computer programmer, I'm not a, you know, a healthcare specialist or anything, so I'm probably using terrible analogies to try to point this out, but I do my best thinking, my best writing, my best commentating in the morning, early. If I sleep in, and I mean I like really sleep in, if I let myself sleep in until 8 or 9 o'clock for me, that's, that's like the, the holy grail of sleeping in. But I always wake up feeling a little bit thick-headed and a little, uh, you know, oh, man, I'm going to have some trouble getting moving. I'm like, you know, moving through tar. So this is something I think I would, uh, I'd like to put to the test even more so than I have been. Normally, I'm up around 5 a.m. And conversely, I'm usually the guy who's looking at his watch at 9 o'clock going, well, <laughs> it's bedtime. I'm, I'm off. I catch a few, a few funny looks from family members who are night owls, but, hey, I'm willing to risk, you know, the, the possibility of, of running afoul of them. Well, check out the article by Hannah Cox. <clears throat> if you or someone you know struggles with depression, maybe this is something that can help you. I'm going to shift gears here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about... Uh, now that we're seeing some normalcy return, I've expressed some concern that I'm glad to see it. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's it's the it's a very happy feeling to walk into a store and realize, hey, almost nobody here is masked and fearful. Not that you have to be fearful to be masked, but um, I think you understand what I'm talking about. A lot of people, um, when, when you see, you know, the mask, all you see are eyes that are very concerned and you know trying to steer clear of people. As if we break that six foot barrier, we're both going to drop dead from this invisible you know killer that's been you know decimating the population. Actually, it hasn't even decimated the population. It's just, you know, it's a risk, but it's it's not what it once was. But the danger is, right now we're in a bit of a lull. 
people are feeling froggy. They're starting to feel a little bit free. You know, they're they're out there exercising some of their own prerogative. And it's it's lovely weather. And I, I encourage them, do it. Get out there, get some sunshine, be healthy. But keep in mind that come come fall and winter, we're all going to be inside more. Flu season will return. I assume that we will see a corresponding spike in COVID infections. What's going to happen in terms of the public health lockdowns? Are we going to revisit that carnage again? We'll talk about that when we return after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Our program is brought to you by our great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also by Pure-Light.com and HSLAmmo.com. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you might consider doing that. If you go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you're going to find a nice little uh, link at the bottom of the page about uh, subscribing to the podcast. That just All that does. Okay, there's, there's no obligation other than when I publish a new episode, you will get a notification. Hey, latest episode has dropped. And you can take a look at the show notes, see is there anything interesting to me, and decide whether or not you want to listen. There's also another thing, and I'm going to ask you, seriously consider this. I apologize, I don't mean to sound like like begging, but I, I want you to understand that this is what I do. I speak the truth and try to, to send as much good, empowering, informative content out there as I possibly can. And it's uh, this is not about, uh, hey, I need some help funding my uh, second home on the mountain. I need some help, you know, uh, purchasing a new yacht. Uh, and, and I need to hire another limo driver for me. Um, like most people, I'm getting by. I'm, I'm building, you know, a, a small business. I do audio production and voice work on the side. But the place where I feel that I'm actually using my, you know, God-given gifts as best I can and for a good purpose is what I'm doing, what I'm doing right now. And that's talking with you and sharing with you information that I hope is providing some kind of valuable insight into the world around us as well as inspiring and encouraging you to stand up and, and be the person you were born to be, to fulfill whatever personal mission it is you have to fill. That's what I do. And so when I ask you, please consider becoming a patron or becoming a regular monthly donor to, to keep this effort alive. I'm asking, you know, whatever you think you could, you could do. A dollar? Five dollars? Fantastic. There's a link there at the end of the show notes where you can do exactly that. And my promise to you is that because of people like you who do this, I'm able to focus more completely on this part of my work and not have to cast about looking for side jobs and, and you know, go pull a shift down at the plant, you know, just to keep the wolves away from the door. My goal is not to get rich. It's not even to get famous. My goal is to reach the people who are looking for 
whatever it is I have to offer. In fact, I want to share a quote with you here real quick. Um, This is something from T.K. Coleman that I saw uh, just the other day, and it just struck me as such solid advice for anybody who is, is more concerned with impact than they are with status. T.K. Coleman said, some people don't need what you're offering. That's how life works. But he says, some people desperately need what you're offering. That's how purpose works. So if what I'm sharing here is, is not your cup of tea, I'm not offended. It doesn't bother me at all. You know, if, if, if I'm not your people, I'm okay with that. Because your people are out there and they, they probably need you. So feel free to go forth and find them. If, however, you're one of those people, one of those, uh, those odd ducks who's, who's a truth seeker and someone for whom, um, you know, truths matter more than platitudes, yeah, you and I have some things we could talk about. So, I'm, again, I'm grateful you're part of my audience. I really went off on a tangent here. I want to come back to, we've, we've seen the lockdowns largely end in many areas. What's the guarantee, though, that somebody isn't going to pull, you know, hit the panic button again uh, this coming fall and winter? John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education has a piece that uh, was recently published about 15 states that are moving to curb public health agency powers following lockdown carnage. And this is encouraging. Or at least it should be encouraging. More than a dozen states have passed or advanced legislation to place new checks on the powers of public health agencies in the wake of the pandemic. And there's good reason for this, because you're starting to see more and more. We're going to talk about this, actually, in the next segment. Um, There's a lot of stuff coming out that's making it very clear. You know, Dr. Fauci's emails made it very clear. There were places where he fudged the facts because, well, to keep the official narrative moving forward, he had to be very careful not to stray from that narrative. And what about those places where the narrative didn't square with reality? Well, that's too bad. The narrative had to be maintained, and so that's what he was trying to do. The latest revelation that came out this last week, um, I, I mentioned this yesterday, it was hydroxychloroquine and uh, azithromycin. Do you remember over a year ago when, when oh, this is being poo-pooed as well, now the FDA really hasn't uh, determined whether this is safe, and people who recommended, even, even health care providers, physicians who said, hey, maybe we should be using some of these things more often, they were pilloried for questioning the narrative, the official narrative. And yet now there's there's some very conclusive evidence that shows the people who come down with COVID when treated with uh, hydroxychloroquine as well as uh, or uh, using azithromycin, 200% more likely to survive and recover from the disease. Interesting. And yet we were told, you can't even question this. You know, there's only one way to do this. Mask up, stay distant, stay home. So, let's talk about this. John, uh, John Miltimore says, Mike Fratanuano grew up in a restaurant, literally. For decades, Sunset Restaurant in Glen Burnie, Maryland, was the family business. Over the years, he'd done seemingly every job imaginable. Busboy, bartender and butcher, prep cook and plumber, handyman and manager, Fortana Tuano says that's what made it so hard to watch the family's legacy become a COVID casualty in 2020. 
He said, it kills me. We were supposed to be getting ready to celebrate our 60th anniversary this year. And instead, we're packing up and closing at the end of this month. This is what he told the Washington Post last year. I try not to get too sentimental about it because it won't change a damn thing, but sometimes the stress hits me and my, my heart starts going like crazy. I get frustrated. It makes me angry. Now, Fratana Tuano is just one of the countless business owners across America who saw their dreams vanish before their eyes in the wake of government lockdowns that crushed their businesses. Now, in the wake of the pandemic, states across the country are starting to advance legislation to curb the powers of health departments following one of the most destructive and contentious years in American history. In May, the Network for Public Health published a report showing that in recent months, no fewer than 15 state legislatures have passed or are considering passing measures that would restrict the legal authority of public health departments. And among the provisions passed or considered include uh, prohibitions on requiring citizens to wear masks, prohibiting health agencies from closing businesses or schools, banning the use of quarantines for people who have not been shown to be sick, preventing state hospitals and universities from requiring vaccinations for employees and students, preventing local governments from exercising emergency powers that are inconsistent with state department uh, or with state health department guidelines. Earlier this year, for example, North Dakota passed legislation making it unlawful for state officials to force citizens to wear masks, just one of a growing number of states to place restrictions on mask orders. In March, Kansas's legislature passed legislation that removes the governor's ability to shut down businesses during a public health emergency. Meanwhile, more than 40 states passed legislation that made it unlawful for health departments to mandate COVID-19 vaccination. Now, John Miltimore says the report concludes that opposition to reasonable public health measures poses serious dangers to life and health. In fact, uh, I'm trying to see this this recent report here. Okay, he's got a, he's got a Twitter link here. But uh, the report says legislation to stop public health, to stop expert public health agencies from leading the response to health emergencies creates unforeseen serious risks to life and health. These laws could make it harder to advance health equity during a pandemic that has disproportionately sickened and killed black, Hispanic, and Latino and indigenous Americans. So this is the PC report that, uh, that seems to uh, balk at the idea of you not doing what this expert or that expert is telling you. Now, Miltimore points out, not mentioned in the report, however, are the unintended consequences of the actions taken by public health agencies across the country in 2020. The collateral uh, damage of lockdowns included business closures, job losses, supply disruptions, mass protests, surging violence, increased mental health problems, unprecedented drug overdoses, and a collapse in cancer screenings. Public health agencies, meanwhile, proved incapable of taming the coronavirus through the use of lockdowns. And by the way, these struggles were not just confined to the United States. I'm going to come back to this article here for the final segment of this hour, but if you have subscribed to the American Institute for Economic Research's website, AIER.org, you would be receiving, be receiving regular reports that would spell this out for you, chapter and verse. The lockdowns did not control the virus. It's like it didn't care what public policy experts were saying. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. Sharing an article here from the Foundation for Economic Education's John Miltimore. Fifteen states are moving to curb public health agency powers following lockdown carnage. And this is this is actually good news. I know that uh, this was unthinkable during the time when everybody was fearful, but what they are finding is that uh, you know all of the all of the lockdowns, all the posturing. You must wear a mask. You can't sit in your car and look at a sunset because the governor or one of his health bureaucrats said that's dangerous, and it had no effect on slowing down the virus. And this is something Jeff Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research has been pointing out for over a year. And that is we have over a hundred years of serious study of virology, how viruses spread, how pandemics play out. All of that was turned on its head last year under the we've got to do something, you know, rubric, which really, you know, something turned out to be we've got to seize power. We've got to lock this down. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to risk sounding like, like I'm getting a bit partisan here, but um, I think one of the biggest tells was when uh, protests for certain causes that matter were deemed as, oh, that's no public health risk, even though you had hundreds or sometimes thousands of people congregated together, chanting loudly in each other's presence, some with masks, many without. Um, Boy, those gatherings, well, there was just nothing wrong with that. But, you know, somebody get together for a rally for a particular political candidate who may or may not have been on the outs with uh, the mass media and with the political establishment. Yeah, that's that's a health danger. That's a super spreader event. It was very clear for anybody who was paying attention. It was highly politicized. And that makes it easier to believe that, yeah, there were people who were using the virus to further their own political agendas. A new study by German scientists, according to the Telegraph, claims to have found evidence that lockdowns may have had little effect on controlling the coronavirus pandemic. Statisticians at Munich University found no direct connection between the German lockdown and falling infection rates in the country. Now, John Miltimore says the devastating impact of the lockdowns, combined with their failure to slow the spread of the virus, demonstrates why these states are right to curb the powers of public health agencies. He says, if 2020 taught us anything, it's the danger of unchecked executive power. Using emergency powers, governors and public health bureaucrats across the country took unilateral, sweeping, and indefinite measures that massively damaged livelihoods and infringed on the rights of millions of Americans. People were fined and arrested simply for gathering privately or exercising outside, walking a pet, paddling a boat on the water alone, or even taking a child to the park. And even though most transmissions took place in homes... And the coronavirus is rarely transmitted outdoors. Now, John Miltimore says Americans may disagree on the precise role public health departments should play in society today. But the pandemic reminded us why checks and balances on concentrated power are so important. See, this is what I like about his approach is that John's taking this from, this is from a very nonpartisan point of view. 
And he says the American constitutional system was deliberately designed to avoid concentrated power. In fact, consolidated is the word the framers would have used because they feared it above all else. John Adams wrote, The only maxim of a free government ought to be to trust no man living with no man living with power to endanger the public liberty. Now, John Miltimore says the authors of the Network for Public Health Law report express concern that public health agencies are being stripped of the power to act by dangerous radicals. But he says the truth is that dangerously radical government agencies are being put in check. Ohio, for example, passed a law in March that extends the limit, or limits rather, let me try that again, limits the length of a public health emergency order to 90 days unless it is extended by the legislature. That same month in Utah, they passed legislation allowing the state legislature to override health agency orders, state health agency orders, during public health emergencies. Missouri, meanwhile, has proposed a law that limits lockdowns to 15 days after which extensions must be approved by legislative bodies. Now, I understand some people are going to say, well, you get the legislature involved, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be political because that's politicians. But here's the difference. Those are individuals, the politicians, who are directly accountable to the voters themselves, as opposed to unelected health department bureaucrats who are essentially untouchable. So absolutely, put it in the hands of people who are accountable, and if the voters say, okay, that was the wrong move, then they have every right as well as the means to turn those rascals out on their ears. John Miltimore says these reforms are not radical. They are both reasonable and sensible. And he says they don't represent an attack on science, which tells us what is, not what we ought to do. But they are prudent checks on power from lawmakers acting within their rightful province. It is necessary to curb the power of government, economist Ludwig von Mises noted in Human Action. This is the task of all constitutions, bills of rights, and laws. This is the meaning of all struggles which men have fought for which men have fought for liberty. The preservation of liberty protected by separating and checking power is the ideal on which the American system was founded. Following a year that saw Americans' rights, dreams and health health rather trampled by central planners wielding vast power with little restraint and few checks, John Miltimore says it's a vision Americans are right to rekindle. And he says just ask Mike Fratatur for Tantuano and the millions of other Americans whose lives were derailed in 2020. By the way, John Miltimore has been another one of those uh, just incredible voices of reason and and rationality and factual-based information as opposed to just, you know, knee-jerk emotional, you know, hysteria. Again, there will be a link to his article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. One final note here. Um, Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a terrific column about time to call it quits, some thoughts on the pandemic in the future. I like how he describes how he felt when he stepped into his favorite coffee shop and found all of the employees except one without face coverings. He says it was joy, pure, unadulterated joy. Gone were the bandanas and surgical masks, and for the first time in a year, I could actually see their faces, their smiles, and their lips moving as they talked to one another and to the customers. 
And he says, the same exultation swept through me when I shopped an hour later in our local grocery store. Just a few days earlier, most shoppers and all the employees were wearing face coverings, but now most patrons and some employees had ditched the ubiquitous masks. He says, I may have looked like a fool, but as I strolled through the store, I kept smiling and nodding at everyone I passed, getting smiles back and feeling as happy as a man released from prison. All this joy because Virginia Governor Ralph Northam relaxed some of the mask mask restrictions and COVID-related orders. But he says the Energizer bunnies in our government never quit. And the more they keep going and pressing their agenda, the more questions of nefarious dealings arise and the more we have to ask ourselves, how will we deal with such government encroachments in the future? Now he says, look, the past few weeks have brought evidence in large part via Dr. Anthony Fauci's emails that much of what the experts told us about the pandemic was either guesswork or, in some cases, outright fabrication. There's doubt whether the masks worked at all. And it's beginning to be clear that COVID-19 originated in a laboratory rather than in a wet market, and worse, that the United States government had a hand in the research of that laboratory. It's also clear as well, and has been since the beginning of the pandemic, that the Chinese Communist Party knew about the virus in Wuhan, yet continued to allow international flights out of that city, thereby spreading the virus worldwide. Now, Jeff Minnick says we can't even truly measure the effects of this disaster statistically. We don't even know if COVID-19 deaths were accurately reported. We'll never be able to fully measure the cost of the lockdowns in terms of people who remained at home and perished uh, from untreated illnesses and those who became addicted to alcohol or drugs or those who committed suicide. He says we will never gauge the cost to our young people in terms of their education and social development. In fact, he says to many of us, it seems our government, both the state and federal level, made a royal mess out of the out of the pandemic. Follow the science was the battle cry in the war on COVID, but all too often, power politics, and money knocked science to the canvas. And here's the thing he asks, if we're faced with another such crisis, he says, I'm betting climate control and energy restrictions. And if we return to the path of obedience that we followed this past year without question or pause, he says, we will continue to make ourselves slaves and lose our freedom. And there are people counting on our subservience. Jeff Minnick says, let's not give them that satisfaction. This is an essay you really should read. It'll put some steel in your backbone for sure. Find it at the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Hey, glad you could join us today. Our sponsors include MonticelloCollege.org, Pure-Light.com, some of the most amazing light bulbs you will ever see in your life. Yes, they do the work of a $1,000 air purifier, 
Go to their website and check them out. There's a link in the show notes. And also, HSLAmmo.com. Just want to give a quick shout-out and props to my friend Spencer Worthington. What a great guy he is. What a great American. And uh, providing something that uh, not only creates value for those who enjoy the shooting sports and want to convert uh, their money into skill, but also a guy who's creating great opportunity right there in his own community. So where to, where to begin for this hour of the show? I think I want to take you back. Come with me, if you will, young feller, and let's, uh, let's sit down and talk about uh, when, the, when the best advice of the day was go west, young man. Was it Horace Greeley who said that? Encouraging people, you know, head out to, to California. That's, that's the place you ought to be. Sorry, I think I just lapsed into the Beverly Hillbillies theme. Why are people fleeing California, though, today? I mean, look, it's, I remember the first time I visited California. I think I was probably 18 years old and, you know, had never been there before. I had friends who had grown up in California, but I had mostly just been around Utah and Idaho and hadn't really been very many other places. I think my only claim to fame, well, I, I went to Wyoming once, which, by the way, not knocking Wyoming, I'm just saying, that was pretty much the extent of my travels. Utah, Idaho, Wyoming. Whew. Yes, sir, I got around. But I had heard of California as this incredible, mystical place. And, of course, you know, I'd watched television and had seen, you know, especially Southern California portrayed as kind of like, hey, you know, it don't get much better than us. And when I went there for the first time myself, I was blown away at just how nice, how new how how upbeat everything seemed. There was clearly action taking place there, and, and I immediately understood. There's a lot of people here, but I get why. You know, that beautiful climate, you know, the, the opportunities. There's no doubt that it brought people running. So why are they fleeing in ever greater numbers today? That's a question that James R. Harrigan takes on. In fact, he says, go east, young man. Here's what he says. He says, go west, young man, go west and grow up with the country. You know, it's been attributed to Horace Greeley by so many for so long that it's almost as if he actually said the words, but he didn't and said as much to anyone who would listen. But no matter. By the time he allegedly offered that advice in 1865, people had been streaming into California for the better part of 16 years. The 49ers started a pattern of migration that would last just over 170 years. And here's an interesting little statistic. Every year, come hell or high water, California saw its population increase until 2020. Now, this is where where James R. Harrigan excels. He crunches numbers, and then he puts them with words, and he makes a pretty descriptive and accurate depiction of what uh, reality is. He says, until 2020, by the end of that year, California's population had dropped by 182,000 people. Now, that may seem like a drop in the bucket when you look at the Golden State's 39.51 million population. But it came on the heels of the loss of a House seat after the 2020 census reapportionment. And looks for all the world to be important of things to come. Businesses and high-profile entrepreneurs have been heading east for a few years now, and that trend is growing. For every Elon Musk, Joe Rogan, and Gene Simmons who leave, there are scores of lower-profile people and companies leaving right along with them. And his point is it's starting to add up. 
What are the reasons for this exodus? Well, James R. Harrigan says everybody seems to be singing the same song. It's the burdensome regulatory regime and the extraordinarily high cost of living that has people looking for greener pastures. And he says no matter how obvious this is to any impartial observer, California politicians just can't seem to make any peace with it. It starts at the top with feckless Governor Gavin Newsom facing a much-deserved recall. He has decided that what the people of the state really need are bigger recovery checks. He's literally trying to buy his way out of a recall. Big surprise. But frankly, there has been something rotten in Sacramento for quite some time, and it was always a matter of when, not if, all of the dominoes would start falling. The answer, it seems, is right about now. And he says if this comes as any surprise to anyone, consider how long California has been a single-party regime. Democrats have held both houses of the state legislature for 22 years. They've held the governorship for 11 their idea of setting things right? Hiring Clinton refugee D.D. Myers, who Governor Newsom recently announced will serve as senior advisor to the governor and director of the governor's Office of Business and Economic Development, GoBiz, which is a cabinet-level position. GoBiz, D.D. Myers. You read that right. Governor Newsom says California is the world's fifth largest economy and gateway to the rest of the world. While the COVID-19 pandemic has greatly impacted our economy, California will bounce back thanks to our incredible assets and our spirit of innovation. An economic recovery that lifts all Californians will require us to work together. With more than three decades of experience in both the public and private sectors in California and nationally, DD brings an ability to work across sectors, ensuring that our recovery is built upon common ground and common solutions. End quote. Now, James R. Harrigan points out the exodus from California, it's still a trickle, and there are more companies staying than leaving at this point, so there is some reason to hold out hope. But he says, for every company committed to staying in California, there are a raft of problems that require answers, and no one, not Newsom, not Myers, seems to have any. Their echo chamber is so complete that they have no understanding of Democratic Party culpability. It was, after all, decades of Democratic policies that rendered California so expensive that the people who would be willing and qualified to work in the state simply cannot afford to live there. He says there's nothing more telling than the patterns of U-Haul truck rentals. In 2020, California had the biggest net loss of any state. How bad was the outflow? Victor Venegas of District Vice President at U-Haul had this to say, For a good part of this year, we've had far more customers than we've actually had equipment to serve those customers. Given that almost none of U-Haul's trucks are coming into the state, expect those shortages to continue. Harrigan says people will find a way to leave regardless. The disincentives of staying are simply too strong. U-Haul reports that the lion's share of those heading for greener pastures are finding their way to Nevada, Arizona, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado. The citizens of those states are a little or more than a little concerned that the newcomers from California will bring their disastrous politics with them, but that's for another day. What matters now is whether California will do anything at all to make it a more palatable possibility for people who would be inclined to live there. 
And James R. Harrigan says, if not, we'll see, we'll see continued erosion of the tax base as it's only people who pay taxes who are inclined to leave and a smaller congressional contingent with each passing census. How bad can it get? Well, there were 170 years of growth. The opposite is a distinct possibility. And it would probably take that long for everyone who wanted, to, who wanted one to rent a U-Haul anyway. Having just, uh, you know, been through the uh, rent a U-Haul and moved to a different state uh, experience myself, it really is a pretty accurate way to determine, you know, where are people going? Where are they voting with their feet? I know a lot of wonderful people who are, in effect, behind enemy lines in California. And I think a lot of them have strong incentives. You know, if they wanted to, to move on, they could. Many of them won't simply because they love their state. They, wanna, they want to, to make things work. But it's not easy under the regulatory burden. Had a friend from there who was explaining how she and her family were, were looking to do an addition on their home. And we're not talking, you know, the, you know, it's not like Hearst Castle. I mean, this is, it's just, it's, it's a suburban family home. But she was describing part of the, the bureaucracy that she had to work through, the number of fees and inspectors and different, uh, you know, government uh, types who had to show up and give their permission to, to make things, you know, okay. It was utterly staggering. I mean, like to the point where I would have said, man, I'd, I'd probably thrown my hands in the air a long time ago and said, I can't do this. I'll, I'll just go somewhere else where there's a little bit more freedom. Yep, California's got a lot going for it. But it's in spite of what its government is doing to the state and not because of what its government is doing. That's probably a good lesson for other states as well and for people everywhere as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thanks again for being a member of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. By the way, if you really want to stay informed, or at least be better informed... I strongly recommend the Resources for Wrong Thinkers page at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. I like to put out daily show notes. Every episode that I publish has accompanying show notes with links to the articles, the commentators that I discuss, as well as, um, you know, different, uh, sometimes I'll throw in a few annotations of my own. But if you really want to get this information, you want to skip the middleman, that would be me. Go to the Resources for Wrong Thinkers page and look at some of the different news aggregator sites, some of the places where you can actually subscribe for a weekly or daily email, as the case may be, and then sit back and just uh, let the information come to you. You can pick and choose what articles you find that are of interest, but um, there's some there's some very well-informed, scholarly people who are not driven by the red versus blue mentality and don't spend the majority of their time spouting bumper sticker slogans. I mean, we live in a time of crisis. I think most reasonable people would agree. And if there is one thing that is of extreme importance as a citizen during times of crisis, it's to maintain your ability to think clearly and independently. 
That means you got to be do- willing to do a lot of your own digging and a lot of your own research and, and thinking about what you're learning. You can't just sit back and let somebody spoon feed it to you. That means me too. I can't, I can't give you this information. Here you go. Here's what you need to believe. That's insulting. You have personal responsibility. You have autonomy. You have a brain. You got to use it. That's how a free man or woman would go about living their life. Moving on. Gosh, has it been? Yeah, it's been like 30 years ago that uh, Van Halen, more appropriately Van Hagar, uh, released their uh, their song uh, Right Now. Wow, it's actually been longer than that, now that I'm thinking about it. The, the video had a quote in there that said something along the lines of, the world is run by oil companies and old men. By the way, in the, in the last 30 years, I haven't seen a lot of evidence that would dissuade me from that notion. I think there's probably some truth there. Robert E. Wright, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a terrific essay on gerontocracy and geezernomics, which in a nutshell is how aged politicians are crippling the future of those who would follow them. So I want you to think of this in terms of this is not just let's bag on, you know, uh, who's in power, but let's look at what they're actually doing and what it's doing for those who will follow them along life's path. He says the U.S. government has become a gerontocracy where ancient ones like President Biden, age 78, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, age 81, and top pseudoscientist Anthony Sleek Fauci, age 80, rule with a liver-spotted iron fist, imposing on the rest of the country what is best described as geezernomics or a system of economic policies that profits superannuated elites at the expense of, other, of most other Americans. The Bible, mothers, Plato, and common sense tell us to respect our elders. But that doesn't mean we should be ruled by them. At some point, loss of mental acuity outpaces any gains from added experience, which is why we don't just make our oldest geezer president. For the unconversant in American slang, an old geezer is a very elderly person, often one who is odd or cranky. So I'm thinking that's probably not a misapplied term here. Geezernomics, Robert Wright says... These geezernomic policies are also quite odd, the stuff of monetary and fiscal cranks who have little to no incentive to support the general welfare, whatever that is. Instead, they pursue self-interested policies with even more gusto than their younger colleagues. In addition to being notoriously vulnerable to scams and flimflams, very old people do not have much skin in the game, even wrinkled skin, because they do not have much time left. If they have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, and so forth, as most do, they have an incentive to bequeath them as much wealth as they can so they want to extract economic rents quickly before it's too late. Like Manker Olson's roving bandit, the ancient ones would rather raid than trade and prefer taking to making. While their younger colleagues want to preserve taxpayers for future exploitation, the superannuated want everything, and they want it now. They do not care that their policies increase the already massive national debt and money supply or damage the English language by calling anything they want infrastructure. Racist policies, anti-racist, and political ploys, science. They don't care if their policies destroy the nuclear family, the educational system, the moral and religious values systems, the very pillars of civil society. 
and the expected costs of behaving badly almost vanish for the elderly. What good would it do to stick Fauci or even Andrew Cuomo, age 63, on death row for their crimes against humanity? Both will be dead in bed if before they die in the chair, even if arrested today. Now, Robert E. Wright says maybe politicians care a little bit about how future generations will judge them. But they must realize they cannot hide their decades of sin forever. So the marginal reputational cost of some extra sins at the end is small. They must also know the future historical interpretations of them will wax and wane with the politics of the time or the cultural zeitgeist, just as it has for George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and so forth. He says the only certainty is that the winners write the history. So best be a winner by getting as rich as possible. Big trust funds will give their progeny plenty of time to write whitewashed biographies of them. Now, Robert E. Wright says, most importantly, of all the gerontocrats, they will not have to live long under the poor policies they create so they can impose ineffective, short-sighted ones without personally bearing the costs. Just as our health care system can persist as one of the worst in the developed world, on a cost-benefit basis, almost 20% of GDP for so-so results because members of Congress created a much better system for themselves. So, too, can Fauci lie about every major aspect of the pandemic. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, age 74, can change her tune about huge federal deficits. And Hunter, or sorry, President Biden... (laughs) That was an interesting Freudian slip. President Biden can turn formerly fierce military warriors into woke social justice warriors. Ashley Hunter et al. will live on as wealthy party royalty, whether in the Democratic Party or the CCP. Mandatory retirement seems the only reasonable solution to the geezernomic policies desired by the gerontocracy. Like the Oak Ridge Boys song, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. There's also a line in a semisonic song called Closing Time. Mandatory retirement doesn't mean that you have to stop working, just that you can't work here anymore. The federal government imposes itself imposes mandatory retirement on some of its own workers. FBI special agents and federal firefighters, for example, have to retire at age 57. That makes sense, as both jobs have significant physical components that older people have demonstrably more difficulty fulfilling. Mental acuity generally declines later and is more difficult to detect, but nonetheless certainly occurs in most people. The federal government recognizes that, so unless they are given a special exemption, foreign service employees in the State Department must depart at age 65. Most other federal employees must retire at age 70. Rules for state government employees vary. In Massachusetts, for example, only police officers, firefighters, and correction officers must retire at age 65. Judges at age 70. To be a good judge requires mental acuity that many older individuals simply can no longer consistently display. For that reason, judges in many states must retire at 70 or 75. Supreme Court of the United States justices, though, may serve for life. Now, the wisdom of that policy, however, is being questioned once again. Why stop at SCOTUS, he asks. Why should any superannuated individual be allowed to ruin the world, deliberately or not, as they exit it? He says maybe we should add a maximum age for the President of the United States, amend the Constitution so nobody over 62 can run for the office. So if he or she serves two full terms, he or she will be out of office before his, her 70th birthday. 
ditto members of Congress. It's not like there's a dearth of people qualified to hold those offices after all. Now, there is precedent for mandatory retirement for policymakers and executives in federal law. Although under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act of 1967, employers in the U.S. usually cannot force employees to retire. But an exception is made for executives and policymakers. After all, it doesn't matter much if an office assistant or line worker is losing it, but if a CEO or board chair is no longer all there, well, for the for and nonprofit entities in that case could be suffering huge losses. So federal law recognizes they should be able to protect themselves from the depredations of entrenched cronies and straight-up geezers who may have seemed fine at the beginning of their terms but by the end may prove to be ineffective or even disastrous. We'll come back to Robert Wright's article on gerontocracy and geezernomics just the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I've been sharing with you some thoughts from Robert E. Wright from the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org. Gerontocracy and geezernomics. And this may sound like you're unfairly picking on a bunch of elderly politicians, but look, it's it's not just because of their personalities, okay? I understand. Biden's quirky, so are many of the other people in leadership positions in the federal government. It's their policies. It's what they're doing. It's their actions. Their time is short, and yet they are leaving a terrible mess for those who follow behind them to clean up. Does that seem responsible? Does that seem like the fair thing to do? By the way, Robert Wright points out, you know, a critic may argue, well, you know, the people choose to vote for these uh, gerontocrats. But he asks, do they really? No candidate receives more than half the votes of the entire electorate because voter participation rates are always so low. Moreover, the choice with any possible impact on the election is almost always between two major party candidates selected by an even smaller slice of the population. See, this is making the hardcore voters go, hey, you're making me uncomfortable. Picking between the geezer with the elephant and the old-timer with the donkey next to their names doesn't really solve the root incentive or superannuation problems identified here. So Robert Wright says, of course, the best solution would be to strip government officials of most of their power and restore stringent checks and balances, especially in fiscal matters, so that our national government remains one strictly limited to defense and diplomacy as the founders intended. But he says, barring that miracle, let's at least not let the ancient ones destroy the country with huge deficits and senseless solutions to drummed-up government or drummed-up or government-induced problems related to climate, income income distribution, rather, and race relations. Most babies born today, one hopes, will live to see at least the opening of the 22nd century. Why should some self-interested geezers with one foot in the grave born before the mid-20th century be able to diminish the quality of their lives? I understand if some people would say, ooh, that seems kind of harsh. Have you looked, though, at what the members of this gerontocracy are doing? I don't think it's harsh at all. It's a little blunt, but sometimes that's uh, 
That's a necessity. This leads me to uh, another topic that I hope will uh, will cause, likewise, just enough discomfort to cause some introspection. That's if if you feel uncomfortable here, it's not because I delight in in causing people, you know, pain. I'm not a sadist. I don't I don't like to see people, you know, suffer under. Oh, why did you make me think about this? But money is one of those topics that it does. We we all have some baggage when it comes to money. Some of us more than others. But when you start talking about things like, well, you know, we have competition in so many other areas of our lives, and competition, frankly, has led to drastic improvement in just about every area of our lives. If there's something good that makes your life easier, I can promise you, competition has something to do with it. Someone found a better way to do something and and then capitalized on it and turned it into a, a way to, you know, sell you a microwave oven or sell you a smartphone or whatever that is. And you can complain, well, they're just getting rich, man, and they don't even pay that many taxes. You're, you're missing, though, the obvious thing right in front of you. How much better is your life? You know, you can pick up a tablet or a smartphone or a laptop computer and work, you know, accomplish things from right where you are through management of information. I mean, you know, this is... This is competition. So why is it that so few people see a positive side when it comes to a competitive market for money? I've got a great article here from Josh Hendrickson. And he says, We here at Economic Forces talk a lot about competitive markets. We also highlight how worried people are about monopoly and dig into whether there's any reason to worry. But he says, What about something like dollars? To some extent, dollars are issued competitively, as in the case of deposits. However, only the Federal Reserve prints up physical currency. Yet there's little in the way of public complaints about this. And so he asks, how can we use price theory to think about a competitive money supply? And what are the macroeconomic implications of these price-theoretic insights? Now here are a couple things worth considering. He says, in theory, we don't need money. Trade doesn't require money. We could always barter. We could always trade entirely on credit. Why do we need to pass some rock or piece of paper or coin back and forth? And the answer seems to be that people are evil. Okay, maybe not evil, but certainly not always trustworthy. A system of credit works well when everyone can trust everyone else or when society can sufficiently punish those who go back on their promises. When trade is fairly anonymous or when it's hard to punish people for not delivering on their promise, though, credit just isn't feasible. And if credit isn't feasible, one could always turn to barter. However, barter isn't really a much better option. Trading goods for other goods is difficult. The transaction costs are high. Some goods aren't divisible. Sometimes people don't have anything that you want to purchase or you don't have anything they want to purchase. When barter is costly and people have a hard time committing to future actions, people need to figure out ways to exchange. One way this might be possible is to experiment with a certain type of barter. For example, one might figure out the types of goods that nearly anyone would be willing to accept, even if they just accept it in order to turn around and sell the good to someone else later on. Through this process, certain types of goods will start to emerge as a medium of exchange. The goods that emerge will tend to have certain characteristics. For example, these goods will tend to be portable, recognizable, durable, and divisible. 
That explains why things like precious metals emerge to fill this role. Once something like a precious metal emerges as a medium of exchange, though, there needs to be some sort of process of creating a standard unit of measurement or a unit of account. In other words, suppose that gold is the precious metal that emerges as money. How would you specify prices? You could specify them in ounces, but ounces of what? Gold, you say? Okay, but what if I give you an ounce of some kind of gold alloy? Is it really the same if 10% of the gold alloy is made up of gold as it is when 90% of the alloy is made up of gold? And the answer is, of course not. The value depends on what the gold is mixed with. As a result, people are going to come up with a standardized unit of account. For example, one might define the dollar as one twentieth of an ounce of gold, where the gold is 9 out of 10 fine. Given this definition, everything can be priced in terms of this standard unit of account known as the dollar. Okay, he asks, what does this have to do with price theory? Well, he says, let's think about supply and demand. When we think about supply and demand, what we're really thinking about are relative prices. The cost of bread is how much of some other good that I have to give up to get the bread. In other words, the cost of bread might be thought of as a two-liter bottle of Coca-Cola or a half gallon of milk. Relative prices are what matter for our decision-making. Of course, reality changes. In reality, changes in dollar prices and changes in relative prices can be the same thing. If there's a drought in Florida that reduces the supply of oranges, the relative price of oranges will go up. But this typically occurs through an increase in the dollar price of oranges. But he says, think about what happens when the unit of account is defined as a particular quantity of a commodity. Given the definition of the dollar that he gave earlier, one dollar equals one-twentieth of an ounce of gold, nine-tenths fine. By definition, this implies that the price of an ounce of gold of the specified quality is $20. The dollar price of gold is fixed by the definition of the dollar, yet gold is traded independently of its use as a medium of exchange. For instance, people buy and sell gold jewelry. Thus, supply and demand should determine the price of gold, but the dollar price of gold is fixed. How do you reconcile that? And he says, this is where an understanding that supply and demand is about relative prices becomes important. Well, it's true that a change in the supply of or demand for gold will result in a price change. Supply and demand really just says the relative price of gold will change. Typically, this means that the dollar price will change, but in this example, the dollar price is fixed by the definition of $1. This means that the dollar prices of all other goods will have to change to clear the market. So considering the following, for example, suppose that there is gold discovery. Holding everything else constant, this increase in the supply of gold should cause the price of gold to decline. Since the dollar price of gold is fixed, other prices will have to rise to clear the market such that the relative price of gold declines. Furthermore, he says, note that the dollar prices of all other goods have to change such that relative prices between those goods all stay the same since the only thing that changed was the supply of gold. Otherwise, there would be an arbitrage opportunity. If the relative prices of all other goods must stay the same, then the dollar prices of these goods must rise proportionally. Thus, gold discovery leads to a higher price level. We have generated a macroeconomic implication from our basic understanding of price theory. I know it's getting a little bit technical. I'll have a couple more thoughts to share from this when we come back, but a competitive market for money, I would welcome it because I believe that if there was sound money, that's where people would go. 
and he talks about what sound money might look like. We'll touch on that when we come back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I've been sharing with you this article from Josh Hendrickson, and it's about competitive markets for money. And he gets into some pretty detailed and, and you know, it's this this is kind of a technical explanation. It's it's a great uh, a great article to read. I'll have it linked in the show notes at the com. But let's cut to the chase here for a moment. And and he says, let's think about a world of competitive paper money. If I'm an entrepreneur and I want to issue my own paper money, how do I get it into circulation? He says, one way to do this would be to simply print up some of these pieces of paper and try to buy things with them. But the success of this type of scheme is dependent on people being willing to accept these pieces of paper as payment. Conceivably, a network effect is necessary to get those pieces of paper circulating. People will be willing to accept my pieces of paper as payment if they expect that other people will also accept them as payment. But this is difficult. One reason why this is difficult is due to the last period problem. Suppose there is some date in the future where people are no longer willing to accept these pieces of paper. In that period, the pieces of paper are worthless. However, that also means that they are worthless in the prior period, and that means that they are also worthless in the period before that. Through backward induction, this means the pieces of paper are worthless today. Now, this problem doesn't exist with something like gold. If at some point nobody's willing to accept the gold coins, well, the gold can just be melted down and sold or consumed. And it does have, you know, industrial uh, uses. But he says, by the same logic, one way to solve this last period problem is to promise to buy those pieces of paper back for some given quantity of a commodity. For example, a currency-issuing firm might offer to give anyone holding this currency a particular quantity of gold per unit of currency. If, for example, they promise to give these currency holders one ounce of gold in exchange for 20 units of their currency, which they call dollars, well, he says that's, that's identical to the gold example I discussed earlier. The promise to buy back the currency at a future date alleviates the last period problem and therefore makes it much more likely the currency will circulate. But he asks, doesn't this create a problem? Shouldn't we fear inflation from the issuance of this competitive money? For example, we know from price theory that firms maximize their profits when marginal revenue is equal to marginal cost. Now, the marginal cost of producing paper money is approximately zero since it costs the same amount to print a $1 bill as it does to print a million-dollar bill. If this is the case, doesn't this mean that these competitive note issuers will print too much paper money and will just end up with inflation? Well, he says the answer is no, and here's why. To keep things simple, suppose that all paper money is denominated in dollars and the dollar is defined as a particular quantity of gold. In that case, the price level is determined by the supply and demand for gold, just as it was in the case in which the dollar was some abstract definition for a quantity of gold. The paper currency itself is just a derivative contract. In particular, the way that he's defined them, he says these paper dollars are just perpetual American-style call options on gold. As long as the issuers of those dollars are committed to redeeming these pieces of paper for gold, as promised, the pieces of paper are as good as gold. Just as the issuances of an, 
The issuance of an options contract for a stock doesn't affect the price of the stock. The issuance of convertible paper money does not affect the value of gold and therefore does not affect the price level. So if banks issue too many pieces of paper, they'll simply be redeemed for gold. Interesting. Now he talks about, uh, you know, with the emergence of cryptocurrencies, there is the possibility of competition in currency once again. And of course, these cryptocurrencies would have to be used as, as media of exchange rather than as speculative assets. One thing to note about cryptocurrencies is that unlike convertible paper money, they don't solve the late period problem. If there's some future period in which nobody wants to accept Bitcoin, then these Bitcoins will have no value. They cannot be redeemed for anything. This, this world is sort of like a world without competing fiat monies. Many argued this sort of world wouldn't be possible. However, he says Ben Klein argued such a world can exist and outlined how a competitive fiat system would operate. But that's another topic for another day. If you want to delve into some competitive money thinking, this is a great article to get you started. Okay, going to end on a positive note here. If you're looking for something to lift your spirits, Daniel Mitchell may have just what you're looking for. Because he reminds us in a recent column that by historical standards, Americans today are fantastically wealthy. What, you don't feel that way? Okay, I want you to hear what he has to say. He says, I've spent decades, several decades, trying to convince people that we should have free markets and small government in order to increase national prosperity. In fact, he says, I've even pointed out how very small increases in annual growth can lead to big improvements in living standards over just a couple of decades. But some folks on the left, he says, are not very receptive to this argument. They genuinely, but incorrectly, seem to think that the economy is a fixed pie, which also explains, at least in part, why they're so focused on redistribution. So let's share some hard data in hopes of getting them to understand that more prosperity is possible. And he starts with a chart of inflation-adjusted per capita economic output in the United States, which comes from Oxford's, Oxford University's Our World in Data. Now, you'll have to go to the article to see the, the charts for, your, for yourself, but the obvious takeaway from this data is that Americans are much richer today than they were after World War II. Adjusted for inflation, we're now about four times richer than our grandparents. Now, some of our friends on the left might be thinking, well, those numbers are distorted. That average output has only increased because the rich have gotten so much richer. And it's true that the rich have gotten richer. But it's also true that the rest of us have become richer as well. That's why he shared data earlier this year showing that median living standards, rather than mean or average living standards, demonstrate this. Folks on the left may suspect that post-1950 data is an anomaly. In other words, maybe he's just cherry-picking the data. That's a common practice in the world of policy. So he says, I don't blame people for being suspicious. So he says, take a look at this chart, which I also shared earlier this year. And it's a chart that shows that the increase in living standards has been even more dramatic if you look at the changes since 1820. And by the way, none of these observations are new. Back in 1997, Michael Cox and Richard Alm wrote a must-read article for the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank's annual report. And some of their findings included what really matters isn't what something costs in money. It's what it costs in time. Making money takes time, so when we shop, we're really spending time. The real cost of living isn't measured in dollars and cents, but in the hours and minutes we must work to live. So a pair of stockings cost just 25 cents a century ago, and that sounds wonderful, 
until you learn that the workers of those of that era only earned about 14.8 cents an hour. So paying for the stockings took an hour 41 minutes of work. Today, a better pair requires only about 18 minutes of work. In calculating our cost of living, a good place to start is the basics, food, shelter, and clothing. In terms of time on the job, the cost of a half gallon of milk fell from 39 minutes in 1919 to just 16 minutes in 1950, 10 minutes in 1975, and 7 minutes in 1997. A pound of ground beef steadily declined from 30 minutes worth of work in 1919 to 23 minutes in 1950, 11 minutes in 1975, and only 6 minutes in 1997. Paying for a dozen oranges required an hour, 8 minutes of work in 1919. Now it takes less than 10 minutes. That's half what it did in 1950. Kind of an interesting way to illustrate this. And by the way, there's another uh, couple of visuals from the article showing like washing machines and and cook stoves and so and so forth. <clears throat> Products have become more and more affordable over time. He says Professor Don Boudreau put these numbers in context a few years ago in a column he wrote for the Foundation for Economic Education. Some of what he wrote is what is the minimum amount of money that you would demand in exchange for your going back to live, even as John Rockefeller lived in 1916? And he says, think about it. If you were a 1916 American billionaire, you could, of course, afford prime real estate. You could afford a home on Fifth Avenue or one overlooking the Pacific Ocean. But when you traveled from your Manhattan digs to your West Coast palace, it would still take you a few days. And if you made that trip during the summer months, you'd likely not have air conditioning in your private railroad car. You could neither listen to radio, the first commercial radio broadcast occurred in 1920, nor watch television. Obviously, you couldn't download music. Your telephone was attached to the wall. You couldn't use it to Skype. Even the best medical care back then was horrid by today's standards. Much more painful, much less effective. Antibiotics weren't available. Dental care wasn't any better. You were completely cut off from the cultural richness that globalization has spawned over the past century. And he says, I wouldn't be remotely tempted to quit the 2016 me so that I could be a $1 billion richer me in 1916. That fact means, by 1916 standards, I am today more than a billionaire. It means that, at least given my preferences, I am today materially richer than was John D. Rockefeller. So the bottom line is, we become richer and we can continue to become richer, but how fast things improve, that's partly a function of government policy. If we can impose some restraints on the scope and size of government, that will give the private sector some breathing room to grow and prosper. You don't need perfect policy, but you have to have good policy. This is The Brian Hyde Show.